Kagan and you're listening to a special episode of the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Stevens Rickard. Today's guest is one of the best qualified senior insurance and reinsurance executives I've ever had on the show. That's because in a 40 plus year career, David Cabral has been in both claims and underwriting, crossed the divide between life and health and PNC, and worked at brokers, both in good times and in very bad times. He's also been in charge of a company in runoff, and he has overseen debt and equity capital raisings on the private and public markets. He's built and run operations, done M&A, and has worked at the biggest incumbents as well as the smallest startups. His resume includes, amongst many other names, Star XS, Marsh, Endurance, Frank B. Hall, Lloyd's, and latterly sustainable finance-focused startup Parhelion Capital. He's also been a long-standing advocate of business and cultural change and the adoption and application of the best technology in our sector. I don't know anyone with a more 360-degree understanding of our business than David. That long preamble is important because it means that what he has to say about the fundamental issue of ESG should carry an enormous amount of weight. This is someone with the right combination of intellectual heft and real-world experience to see exactly where we are going wrong as an industry on the biggest challenge our sector has ever faced. To his brains and experience, I should also add a fearlessness in telling things exactly as he sees them. If ESG represents the greatest reset of risk since the Industrial Revolution, here is someone who has thought things right through to their logical conclusions and wants to help build an insurance sector that is fit for purpose in a world of ever more dynamic risk and exponentially growing real-time data. David is an outspoken communicator and a great advocate for our sector and the transformative power it wields across the global economy and wider society. Also, I've rarely interviewed someone able to express themselves quite so freely, and this is what I think makes this episode something a little special. I can highly recommend a detailed listen. Enjoy the podcast. This episode is supported by Stevens Rickard. Stevens Rickard Limited is an executive search firm with offices in London, Chicago and Zurich, and a specific focus on the global insurance and reinsurance markets. Whilst this is far from unique, what sets it apart is its dedication to searching beyond the obvious, its bespoke DNI reports produced for each project, its near obsession with doing the right thing by both clients and candidates, its 100% track record in completion of assignments, and the pride the firm takes in improving the businesses of its clients and the careers of its candidates. It's not all about us. It's about you. Visit stevensrickard.com to find out more. David, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you very much, Mark. A real pleasure joining you today. Oh, it's really good to have you on the show. I mean, you've had a, a fantastic career that we've almost made acquaintance in different times. You're one of those people I think I should have known and I should have met more times over the last 20 years. But why don't you just fill us in? Sure. Well, you would have regretted knowing me 20 years ago. I was quite a spitfire in the insurance industry, you know, always wanting to get things done at lightning speed, and which, of course, in our industry doesn't tend to happen. So it's good that we meet now. <laughs> I am conscious of nobody really wants to hear in great length everything I've done in the last 42 years. So I'll... 42, goodness, right, yes. Yeah, there's certain things that happened 42 years ago that would not happen today. Well, just give us the highlights then, David. Exactly. I would say the first 20 years of my career, I was very fortunate that I worked across the spectrum of claims, underwriting, broking, operations, and risk manager. So having that depth and breadth of experience, I think, was really very helpful because it was able to consolidate all of these experiences and really 
expand my knowledge considerably. And I think that always transfers very well when you're dealing directly with the client because you understand so much of their business beyond product. I will say that certainly in that first 20 years, a lot of what I was hired for was I was parachuted in to turn around failing businesses. And you can imagine the 1980s, I was very active. Absolutely. Where were you based? You spent a lot of time in Bermuda in the States. I started out my career in Bermuda in reinsurance pre-ACE and Excel. How is that a way? Wow. So industry veterans often describe that period as they were overgrown captives that started doing third-party business. Is that actually true? That is very, very true. (laughs) Just the days of Scanry. I can't think of any other names. Bolton Insurance, Mentor, Insco, the list goes on. uh, No, I mean, it was great because I started out in claims. And by the way, for any young person that is interested in starting a career, I really highly recommend you start out in claims because, and particularly if you can be a multi-line claims handler, the depth and breadth of your experience, you actually start learning more about the policies and the underwriters that write the products because you see the end result. This is actual case law effectively. It's just how will the policy actually respond? Exactly. And certainly then if you were as vocal as I was and you go to the underwriters and recommend a series of exclusions very quickly, you know. (laughs) So incoming, you're a claims handler rather than a claims broker. Correct. And so it was both insurance and reinsurance, because certainly at that time, Bermuda was quite a significant reinsurance market. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, the lovely LMX spiral hit everybody globally. But in Bermuda, Bermuda actually, I think, was hit even harder than London was because 99.9% of those companies no longer exist from that period. And very many of them had some form of Bermuda reinsurance relationship, and sometimes they were quite closely held as well, weren't they? Correct. So the benefit, again, was, you know, started out in claims there, saw the end result, rapidly moved into reinsurance underwriting, and at a very young age was appointed to handle the runoff of one of those companies. So that was an incredible experience at the age of 21, having that sense of responsibility of making sure that your investors get some sense on the dollar rather than nothing at all. But a great privilege and, again, great learning experience. But as you can imagine, when you're watching an entire industry implode on a very small island, you have to think about what your opportunities are. So I did move to the United States, and that's when I jumped into the broking side of the business. Pretty exciting times, I think, because back then you didn't just rely on the commissions. You had to sell services. You know, the fees were very, very critical for our growth. And I enjoyed my experiences at Marsh, but I think the real fantastic experience for me was working for Frank B. Hall for five years. And just to anecdotally share, I started working for them the week their stock stopped trading on the New York Stock Exchange because they were close to bankruptcy. Great day to start. But the benefit of that experience was the leadership team that came in at that time. Their mandate was, how do you turn around this seriously failed business. And you can imagine your competitors are knocking on the door, you know, telling clients you don't want to stick around, they're going to go bankrupt. And what ends up happening is you learn how to run a very lean organization. And I do mean lean. We had very little support and how to outsell and outperform. And so I was very lucky because I worked in the international division of Frank B. Hall. And as a result, they would actually parachute me into multiple countries to help out with products or to turn businesses around. 
Additionally, I was contracted out to be the risk manager on the international programs of many of the largest Fortune 1000 companies, you know, based in the US. So you were getting the perspective of not just placing business, but acting as the customer as well and engaging, not just with the corporate office, but of course, visiting and working with all of their offices overseas. So it went really far beyond property and casualty. You know, I got heavily involved with employee benefits and other areas. But again, I take all of that to say that working in an environment where you have to turn business around, boy, do you learn what not to do. You know, what is your edge? How do you create an edge of a competitor? So a lot of fun. And then when they were acquired by Aon, I actually became quite involved with their M&A in Europe. And so I was living and working in London and Madrid at the time for those programs. And simultaneously, I decided to go back to university. So I was studying full-time university in London as well. So good couple of decades. So that was most of your 90s accounted for, I presume? Correct. The latter part of the 90s, I had done some consulting work for Star Access in Bermuda. This is before they were acquired by AIG. Yep. So they were a standalone company, and they really liked what I did there on a consulting basis. So they hired me to join them. And that was a fantastic opportunity because it was at the softest of the soft market. Well, that was a very soft one. I was broking then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It wasn't fun. <laughs> <laughs> It was very hard to know where you were. You kept saying, you can't get it lower than that. And then someone would come back to you and say, well, somebody else has just done it for half price. And you'd feel like a complete idiot. Listen, particularly for us, I mean, at one stage, we were putting up 150 million net limits for product liability. And you're watching the rates just plummet. And you're just thinking, I have to decline. There's absolutely no way that I can write this. So the great thing about the company is that was not a considerable amount of pressure to write top line. It really was about how to create a profitable portfolio. I worked with a phenomenal colleague and we ended up creating new casualty products. And all of a sudden we were getting a lot more business coming back to Bermuda. So that was great. We led the charge of that. And then subsequently, Ace and Excel followed us as well to do that. So really great experience. I was also then asked to be, in addition to underwriting, be the chief operating officer, which came in a very interesting time because AIG fully acquired the company. They were a shareholder in the company before. And I had the responsibility of leading the integration with AIG. Interesting challenges, but I would say the great thing is at the time, Hank and Evan Greenberg were huge advocates for our company, very, very supportive. And we really grew exponentially from that. So it was quite exciting. But after a period of time of doing that, I returned to the US working in California with Fireman's Fund and Marsh for a period of time. And then I was called back to Bermuda to be one of the founding members of Endurance. So part of the remit was to build out the insurance lines in Bermuda. And that was at the time, obviously, post 9-11. So there was a lot of activity in Bermuda at the time. And it was really great to reconnect with so many clients that I'd had an extensive relationship with. Yeah. Certainly, that's when your name would have come on my radar as now, uh, for me, being an insurance journalist, obviously looking at endurance and you know, that cohort of companies being such core to the international insurance and reinsurance markets. Absolutely. It was really great to build something that you were quite proud of. And I will give the executives credit that they gave me carte blanche to build it exactly how I wanted to. 
And I think they were very pleased with that because then I would inherit a lot of other jobs you know, <laughs> in the organization. I think the most exciting one, you may recall that we IPO'd very early. Yes. It was very unexpected. I don't think anyone else was expecting us to do that. And I was asked to sort of co-lead all of the preparation internally for the IPO, which was quite a bit of a, a heavy lifting. But I think they saw my abilities of being able to build operations from the ground up that were very effective. So if there were any loose ends that needed to be tied up in other parts of the company, they gave me carte blanche to work with those teams to turn that around and correct it. Because certainly as a company that would be on the New York Stock Exchange, governance was absolutely critical. Absolutely. So fun time, really enjoyed it. Company expanded quite a bit. And I think just after three years, I thought, you know what, I've done it all now. So I retired and I was bored after three months. <laughs> <laughs> no one retires from this industry, you know that. I think we have gullible written on our foreheads, you know, not just written, but a neon flashing lights. You know? <laughs> so. Well, no, I don't know if you're the sort of person who wants to change the industry for the better, then when you get a new opportunity to do that, I expect you can't really say no. So anyway, why don't we fast forward a bit? Certainly the last time that I saw your name in lights was around Parhelion Capital. Right. At this point, we're talking about ESG focus underwriting, net zero underwriting. Tell us all about that. That was a fascinating thing. Because, of course, by then, effectively, you'd done your absolute total 360 apprenticeship because you've been a claims person. You've been in businesses that are failing, broking and underwriting. You'd organized runoff. You'd also organized capital raising on the public markets and presumably also in debt markets on the private capital markets as well. So you've kind of pretty much done everything. You've ticked absolutely all the boxes in terms of your experience. But now you can see a new challenge. And you think this is going to be something that we all know we're going to be doing for the next 30 years, but no one really has got a plan of how to do it yet. So tell us about that, because that was a really interesting um, development. That was quite exciting. So Julian Richardson, who is the founder of Parhelion Underwriting Limited, which is a climate finance and insurance advisor. Julian's been doing that aspect of insurance and finance for 20 plus years, and he's been in the industry for over 30 years. But Julian really had a very strong belief that there was an opportunity within the space. And as somebody who's worked on climate so diligently and been heavily involved since the Kyoto Protocols in the 1990s, he really has been trying to marry the insurance industry and climate finance for decades. Yep. And it's a struggle. It is really a struggle. Parhelion has been designing incredible products. And he was thinking about what sort of platform could be created. So we'd known each other for a few years, and he knew a bit about my background. And I had just retired from Peak Re, where I was doing operations and interim head of life and health there. And it really caught my fancy because, one, climate is the number one risk in our world. Let's not pretend otherwise, because it impacts all aspects of our lives. And to think otherwise is naive. And even if you don't believe it, it's a political reality. So you're going to have to do what you're told anyway. Even if you're going to do it kicking and screaming, you're still going to have to do it. Oh, absolutely. But here's somebody that has been proactively trying to engage. And so when he articulated to me what he was thinking about, one of the things that we discussed was the realization of everyone is viewing climate risk as something relatively new. No offense, asset managers have had it on their radar and on their balance sheets for 20 plus years, you know? Yeah. 
And there is considerable amount of reports that clearly evidence that when you take ESG risk metrics into consideration, what the positive and negative impacts are on those portfolios. So when we were looking at these indexes, we said, listen, there's a correlation here from an insurance perspective. And we think we can build a company from this, but we know that we can't just go out. So we need to create more evidence to provide it to the private equity world. So what we did is we purchased raw ESG data from a number of rating agencies, had zero interest in their ratings because it's their ratings. We wanted to see what the underlying fundamentals were. And so we hired Howden's analytics team. And I think at the time it was called Hyperion HX or something. Yep, that was right. We asked them if they could help us map out our thesis. So it took them a couple of months. You know, obviously there was a lot of back and forth and so forth. And no surprise, it ended up showing that the results proved our hypothesis. And the hypothesis is that companies that are better on ESG are better risks in general. Yep. Exactly. Higher ESG ratings tend to have lower insurance claims. Yep. You know, no surprise, they're not dumping pollutants in the Colorado River. And they're treating their staff fairly. Correct. And they have good governance, obviously, as well. So, yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Howden and Fidelis did a joint study, which they announced in November 2022. Yes. We were quite proud of the fact that we originated that first report back in 2020. Your job there, Pahalian Capital, I mean, the key word is capital, that you were going to raise capital for an own balance sheet business. What happened? It's an interesting thing because when Julian approached me, what I said to him, I said, we have to think beyond even ESG. Because when you are looking at all of the factors you have to take into consideration, you don't do it as a regular insurance company. You have to now think of yourself as a technology company that happens to write insurance. And I say that because there's so many data points that are required. And in fact, I think I shared with you on one of our previous conversations, Mark, is that ESG is risk. And this is the opportunity for our industry to redefine risk because ESG permeates throughout every aspect of a business, of our personal lives. There is nothing that it doesn't touch. And so this is a great opportunity to think about what does a clean balance sheet look like? that doesn't replicate what everyone else is doing. So the foundation really was a technology-driven company of which AI machine learning was a key consideration. And fortunately, I've got about 20 years of experience with AI machine learning. So for me, it was great to understand what we need to do, how to build it. And it was really driven by not only insights for the underwriting, but insights that you share with your customers. Because this isn't about providing an insurance policy the 1st of January, and then you have a conversation at the next renewal. Oh, what did you do in the last 12 years? It was creating this virtuous cycle of shared information to give to the customers to not only say we're supporting transition, but we actually wanted to encourage acceleration. And you can only do that if you can provide them with information that will help them better identify their risks, what the gaps are, and recommendations for improving those risks. And it's much more of a real-time thing rather than just once a year. Exactly. So it literally was designed to be 365 days of constantly sharing this level of information. Was it also contingent on them sharing their own information with you? Yes, it was. But it was also based on, so our industry receives more information from a corporate customer than they provide to any other types of industries or organization. 
not even the bank manager. Oh, absolutely. We talk about financial analysts and how they specialize in industry X, Y, and Z. I'm not demeaning them in any particular way, but I can assure you a financial analyst does not have the depth and breadth of information that a corporate gives to the insurance industry. And the industry is terrible at extrapolating that information. They extrapolate the five points they believe to underwrite that one product and dispose of the rest. Yeah, A Google or an Amazon would just be in heaven to receive that level of information. So in designing this, the idea was to then approach the private equity teams and say, by the way, this is what we're doing. And would you be willing to support this? We also went to a number of insurers and reinsurers to see whether there would be a particular interest in providing some sort of equity and then even thinking how we could then ultimately help them out with their own portfolios as well, too. So it was a very sort of broad approach to take. And the feedback was very interesting. I think, number one, there was balance sheet exhaustion at the time that we went in. Of course, there were a number of startups. I think, you know, Inigo. It wasn't a great time in the market to be doing any kind of startup because people were just really retreating to their core business, weren't they? It wasn't even so much that. There was an active dislike for PNC balance sheets. No, absolutely. They were more interested in distribution. So that's why there was more happening on the brokerage side, yep. more happening on insure techs that really were almost like MGAs. That sense of, let me get involved in the distribution because I'm not tying up all of my capital. Because by the way, when I've tied up my capital in the past, I'm sorry, but a 9% return just doesn't do it for me. <laughs> so yep, yep. you had that challenge, number one. Number two, imagine being the first voice presenting an ESG proposition. It's a tough sell. It's a very tough sell. As a journalist, I, I can perfectly sympathize with you. Being the messenger is not always the best thing to be because you do get shot or shot at at least. Yeah. Intellectually, the interest was there, not even a question. It was the question of how do you then go back and sell it to the committee that obviously signs the checks. And that's, I think, where the struggle was for quite a few of them. We certainly had very supportive individuals within the PE world. I think one of them reached out to me recently and said, hey, have you thought about coming back to the market? I just said, no, because what's happening now, there's a lot of noise and we have to fight through the noise of ESG because what we're creating still bears no relationship to what anybody else is doing. You know, So you've got another pile of things that you have to sort of cut through. The timing certainly seems to be better now. Obviously, balance sheets are coming into favor. I mean, it's really all to do with interest rates. Let's face it, we've just forgotten what happens when you have zero or below zero interest rates for such a long time. Correct. I mean, there's some younger people who don't even know that these interest rates are, are still below long-term normal, Right. the levels that we've got now. But anyway, but that's given you a wider appreciation of what the industry's doing with ESG. So do you think the industry is actually at the moment on track? I can't think of a better qualified person, given your completely in the round resume to date, and also the fact that you've been out and perhaps discovered that you were too early, too early first mover, too early to actually get the first mover advantage, because you weren't necessarily backed at that time. Mm -hmm. What have you learned about the industry? Do you think we're on the right track in terms of net zero? There are very high level industry initiatives. Do you think we're getting anywhere near the right place where we need to be? No. So I'm always appreciative of reading the declaratory statements that come out. And I think some people may consider me as a cynic, but when I read the declaratory statements, the next question I ask myself is, now let me dig deeper. 
Because at the end of the day, there's a battle going on to show that you're trying to do something because there's a lot of activity going on and questions saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? And so you have to evidence that you're doing something. And I appreciate the need to respond. But if you're going to respond, if you're not doing much, there's a way of responding to say, we're just at the beginning, we're working on it, and we hope to be able to produce more information to share with you. Not everyone's doing this, please don't misunderstand me, but to go a full PR route and try to put out a pretty 40-page report out of Europe or something or out of London, I think it's insulting to a lot of people because the real interest and the real focus on our industry, as you've seen in a growing interest, actually is from people outside of the industry that are saying, wait a minute, yes, we're holding fossil fuel companies to account and you better do this and you better do that. But there's far more sophisticated people now that are saying, hold on a minute, who's enabling these companies to actually increase fossil fuels, you know, to drill another pipeline and so forth. So obviously, first in line is the banks or whomever that's providing the financing. And then those activists have certainly discovered insurers in the last few years. Again, that's being really, really key enablers of all this. Correct. And there is a way to positively respond to this, Mark. But to go out full PR, it creates a position in the industry that almost says to the rest of the world, oh, are you all blowing smoke? Are you all greenwashing? You know, what's going on? It's gotten better. Please don't misunderstand me. But there was a point last year where I stopped calling it greenwashing. I was calling it green flooding. Just this incredible wordsmithing that was taking place that didn't have any substance behind it. So you'll hear a constant phrase now that we're here supporting our customers' ESG transition as part of the insurance industry's way of responding to this. Okay, that's great. What are you doing? How are you supporting that transition? Oh, we're providing insurance. Okay. But that's the same insurance policy that you provided before you made declaratory statements about transition. Okay, so you're providing one or two carbon storage, you know, or voluntary carbon market products. Okay, but in the realm of your portfolio, what is the percentage of that? It's micro. So the issue here is not about solely negative screening, where you're saying, oh, we're going to non-renew our entire fossil fuel portfolio. We've seen some of those declaratory statements. Read the small print. When you read those statements, there are exceptions, and there's always exceptions. And by the way, there should be exceptions. But again, be careful when you read this and don't take it at face value. And again, that's not to be critical of our industry. It's to say there's other factors that are taking place. But negative screening potentially has a place, of course. Yeah. But it's the positive screening that's very, very critical to our business. You're taking this opportunity to redefine risk and redefine where each element of ESG, and particularly relating to climate, where does it impact every single one of your products? And the big issue, it's actually been an issue before ESG occurred, and I've written many times about this. We are a product-centric industry, and particularly in wholesale markets, it is strictly product. When you hear the word client in a London market, particularly if you read a certain corporation's reports and they use that word client, what they're really meaning is the broker. Mm -hmm. It's not the same thing. Or they use it interchangeably. It's just a buyer. It's a consumer of my products, not actually anything with a personality. (laughs) So when you are looking at positive screening for 
your customer, you actually have to look at your entire customer profile, not that sole element, I'm a property underwriter and I only look at this, or I'm a DNO underwriter and I only look at this. Because guess what? Climate doesn't only look at that. What are the impacts that you as a property underwriter would have not have considered that is impacting the DNO, but ultimately can trickle down and impact the property and vice versa. Yeah. And we as an industry have done a terrible job of actually having a full customer profile of their risk. It also doesn't make any sense. If they also talk about cross-selling, but actually no one really does any because they're completely focused on their own product, on their own silo, on their own little P&L, and that's it. But even the cross-selling is about saying, say if you're a property underwriter, oh, by the way, our company can also write your DNO and so forth. But that's all you know. You know your product, but you don't know your customer. So it becomes this question of what is your customer's requirements? What are the needs? And so, again, looking at the opportunity, you know, people talk about the opportunity for ESG. And you know, I think they're always thinking solely on that. Oh, we can create sort of new products here and there, which, of course, is a new opportunity. I'm not downplaying that at all. But the opportunity, again, is redefining risk and redefining how you capture your customers' exposures, the ability to analyze all of that information, including your perceived existing information, that if you add these other factors, all of a sudden you start identifying you better other insight. factors. Exactly. For example, in, at least in electronic placing, we've had for many years, I mean, for 30 years, we've had the Accord standards that can underpin things. Okay, They can't underpin 100% of everything, but they can underpin 80% of most of the things that most people do in the insurance market most of the time. They work. Do you think we could have something similar for ESG within insurance, the kind of accord standards for ESG data so that your broker can go to the insurer and go to the reinsurer, this information can flow up and down and around? Is that something that has to be designed like an accord standard effectively, like a JPEG so that we can all send each other pictures, that kind of thing? There have been a number of questionnaires that were created in the last year. But it's no good if you have 20 different ones and they're all slightly different. Even if we just had the singular one, they're incomplete. Yeah. They're providing a perspective of what the questionnaire designer thought was. The right question. If you're asking the wrong question, you really, you're not going to get very far, no. Exactly. And by the way, this isn't just ESG. This, this could be any exposure. It should be more like an API, a kind of gateway or something like that, right? Well, this is why I'm sure we're going to be talking about AI. Absolutely. But this is actually where it's very critical. Companies are making profits now, finally. And this would be the time to finally invest in your infrastructure. Certainly now it's making the headlines everywhere. I mean, could you just get an underwriter to dump every submission into chat GPT or its equivalent and just say, what do you think of this? You could, but then again, there's factors there that you'd want to avoid. I think you lose the intellectual property rights to any of that information if you did that. Yeah. There is an API that you can get with ChatGPT, which I highly recommend companies get because I'm, I'm sure we all saw what happened with Samsung where they were putting their proprietary formulas on <laughs> in ChatGPT. You know? And the problem is it went into regular ChatGPT. So it's now part of the learning process. If you have the API productivity ChatGPT, you can keep within your own sort of realm. But this is where the Parhelion project was also quite different because the foundation was a technology company. You actually have some key fundamentals that are very critical there. And that is you have a data lake, which if you set it up correctly, it enables you to capture 
all types of data, structured, unstructured, and so forth. And even if you don't use it, the way you can store it, you have that ability to go back and effectively utilize it. So again, there's a lot of information, as I said, that a lot of corporates will give to you. Again, it may be a DNO policy. And yes, of course, they know what to give with the DNO. But so many of the corporates that I you know, have great relationships with tend to give a lot of other additional information because they want to clearly evidence that they are well-governed organization. Yeah. But a no underwriter does absolutely nothing with that information. Particularly with so many public companies now going to have a sustainability report, and they've got so right. many things, that which is going to be absolutely chock full of data. Correct. So a questionnaire is fine, but it's not going to give you the broadest picture. You have to go fishing in a much bigger pond and you can go and create that pond almost yourself anyway, is what you're saying. Correct. So that's why in terms of the foundation, if you have this data lake and then you develop a unified analytics platform over that, of which obviously AI is a very critical component, you can start stress testing data points that really can give you a plethora of different viewpoints of what you think the risk is. You know, for example, I listened to a recent podcast of a carrier that is contracted out with an ESG rating company. They were saying, oh, you know, we're capturing 158 data points for ESG. Well, for Parhelion, I was capturing over 7,000. <laughs> and that's not to critique them, you know, that is the methodology, but it was because we set up the right infrastructure to capture the breadth and depth of what a customer provides to you. Yeah. In addition to the ESG data service providers, and that's another whole conversation altogether. Yeah. What do you think about rating, by the way, in terms of are we going to have an AM best S&P kind of equivalent in the ESG world for the insurance rated part of ESG, do you think? You'd think that the standard rating agencies have got a head start because, of course, most of them have been rating green investment bonds for many, many years already. For I mean, for 20, 30 years. Focused on financial materiality. Yeah. But they're not focused on the actual substance of what makes something green or not. So financial materiality ratings could be helpful to a DNO underwriter, but not for their entire portfolio. Yeah they'll be aware that there's a potential lawsuits resulting from financial materiality. So that would be helpful. Fair enough. Do you think something would emerge? Do you think that's a great business opportunity in actually becoming that tradable source of information, public source of information about an ESG opinion, a score, that kind of thing? It is real simplification, but it's it's a really good starting point, at least if the company says, we don't underwrite people with a score of over 52 this year and next year it's going to be 48 the year after that will be 44 you can see how that progression is going along and we're going to help them get to 44 somehow which you're saying at the moment they're not actually helping much but do you see what i mean will something emerge also could it be imposed on us in a more statutory way so i'll take a step back i wouldn't say that the current rating agency ratings are not helpful i think what they are is it's a baseline you can use it as a baseline and certainly we actually intend on using every single esg rating company's data because not one of them share the same methodology. Yeah, certainly there doesn't seem to be a huge correlation. Again, that's often the problem, isn't it? Particularly at the pioneering stage, you say, well, hang on a minute, none of these even fall in the same range. And it falls down to their methodologies and their perception of risk. So think about it in a simplistic way. If you're a product liability underwriter and you're underwriting pharmaceuticals, you know that the FDA has approved this particular drug, but does that mean you give it carte blanche to say, I'm going to underwrite it? Of course not. You're going to provide further analysis to create your own particular metrics. Yep. So I think the same applies here for ESG ratings. You know, Even if there was either 
an agreement by the industry or regulators that you will be using this entity's ratings. The reality is, as an organization, what you'll say or should say is, this is my baseline. However, I understand where all the gaps are, so now I need to build upon that. So I think what will happen is at some point there may be an agreed baseline, but it will never be 100%. That would be like using an RMS or an AIR and saying, I'm solely going to base my property underwriting on the results that are generated by those models. No, because again, you have your own perception of risk. You have your own perception of how much capital you want to allocate and also how much of that data is real time? Yeah, I mean, it's all out of date, isn't it? Before by the time yeah. you get it. That's the benefit of buying raw data and literally ripping it to shreds. You know, our chief data officer, Sarah O'Connell, who's just absolutely brilliant, she just ripped it apart. And what we found was, in some cases, obviously, they've filled in various fields. Some of the fields hadn't been updated for quite some time because for the rating agencies and for their customers who again for so many years was the investment bankers and asset managers it wasn't a priority yeah but again risk is never stagnant yeah everything evolves in life so where do you think it's going to go i mean how do you think it's going to evolve then when we talk a lot about ecosystems is it going to be effectively a coalition of a willing client with a willing insurer who really get on the right wavelength and actually agree to be part of this real-time data sharing and exchange relationship. And then you, the insurer, has a very acquiescent and, again, ESG-friendly reinsurer. Is that what we refer to as an ecosystem? And you've got good brokers in between, of course, enabling all those connections as well and really not getting in the way and maybe enhancing extra information along the chain. Is that what we mean by a sort of ESG insurance ecosystem? An ESG ecosystem is actually far broader than that. But I just want to step back because you raised a very valid point there in terms of sharing that customer data. So... I've known about this for years, but oddly enough, working on the Parhelion project, you can imagine that we went out to quite a few corporates, risk manager to say, would you back this? Would you support this? Would your board support this? Because again, with our industry, you can have the world's smartest team, but if you don't have any customers, you don't have a business. Yeah, because it's not a commitment to be entered into lightly. This is a lifelong commitment and a fundamental change in the way you're going to do business. Correct. But can I share with you how many stories we heard in terms of the feedback we received when we said, listen, the whole point of this is we're going to be giving you 365 days out of the year. We're giving you access to a live dashboard, not just in terms of where your risk, because your risk isn't stagnant. And you compare what's going on, whether it's climate and so forth, but also we want to give you comparatives in terms of your industry, where you fall on the curve, Depending on how ambition you want to be, that may be an impetus for your board to say, you know what, we want to get to that point. And what was interesting, the amount of times that we received the feedback to say, we never received risk insights from our markets. Now, the risk insights they receive, and I, I want to stress it's risk insights, not market insights. Because yes, they receive market insights every renewal. It's like, oh, by the way, this is the state of the market. It's a softening here. You may want to consider buying more limits. All of that is there. And there are certain elements in terms of maybe on the property cat side, where some of the brokers in particular have separate analytics unit. But in terms of real industry risk insights, without exception, every single one of them said, we've never received. And in fact, one risk manager whom I've known for over 20 years, 
said that she asked for this information every year from the brokers and the carriers. And as a global company, they had a relationship with pretty much every name in the market. So that gives you an indication of that. And another example, which I think is very critical because it's real time, wildfires obviously has become an incredibly huge exposure for yeah. many companies. You know, obviously the emphasis was on California, especially a couple of years ago, but the wildfires in Europe last summer were just unbelievable. And I'm currently based in Portugal studying Portuguese. Well, you know, in the Iberian Peninsula, we've had the earliest wildfire. We had a wildfire in March on the east coast of Spain. Right. So we had two customers, one in California and actually one here in Europe, where because wildfire was such a critical exposure to them, they heavily invested in IoT. I mean, they have IoT'd every property, acreage, the whole bit. And they turned to the industry and said, you can have access to all of the data in real time. There was not one company that picked it up. Because they just weren't equipped. Not equipped. Because what I find is when these stories sort of come up, oddly enough, the underwriter is in the firing line. Well, the underwriter isn't responsible for the operations and planning for this level of data. It's the board and the CEO. So where is the data strategy? You know, where is the future proofing to create an environment where you can start applying predictive analytics? So I can't fault the underwriter. You haven't given the underwriter the tools that they need. So many underwriters on the property side, finally, the use of satellite imagery is being used more and more. But I remember five years ago where I was supporting a really phenomenal team based in Italy, and we were pitching to the globals. The answer was not interested. You know, things evolve very quickly. So back to the ESG ecosystem, it is more than just the sharing of data. So the ecosystem that we were designing was actually also including a whole array of ESG service providers from something as simple as helping them develop their reporting to clearly identifying and articulating key risks, whether it was water, energy, and then how to respond to that and how to adapt their business to that. It was a very ambitious ecosystem. Initially, when you approached organizations, the response was, insurance? Why would I talk to you guys? And what we were saying to all parties was that if we have the permission and the agreement with all parties, and yes, you provide those services, and yes, you support that customer, but if there could be data feedback into this sort of central ecosystem, it could be shared amongst all parties so that those ecosystem providers could provide better services. Yeah. The client can clearly identify where their risk gaps were. And more importantly, you're accelerating the ESG transition. So that's why I said earlier, when companies say they're supporting ESG transition, I'm sorry, your insurance policy is not supporting ESG transition. What else are you doing to really help that customer? And certainly I've heard of pinch points, particularly in carbon capture, all sorts of things where you'd think the insurance industry would be able to find a solution, certainly because they don't sound like terribly difficult things to insure a machine that needs to heat up something to 700 degrees centigrade. Of course, we know that that sounds a bit like a fire hazard or an explosion hazard, but it's not something that we haven't been insuring for the last 200 years since the invention of the steam boiler. But it's hard to find capacity, isn't it? Because it seems to be siloed. I have to say to you, again, I defer back to Julian and the incredible products he's created over the years. Some of the products have a 0% loss ratio. <laughs> well, that'll get you into trouble if you're not careful, yes. And 
difficult to find capacity. But even the carbon capture storage has been proven to be very interesting to evaluate. So yes, of course, there's this growing idea that this is going to help save our planet. But guess what? It's going to take more than carbon capture and storage. Absolutely. Removal, I would say. But the funniest thing is some of the biggest users of carbon capture storage is the energy companies. <laughs> they use it as part of the process you know, to actually increase productivity. It's not a bad thing. I'm not criticizing when I say that. I'm just saying that's the case. But if you look at it from a pragmatic perspective, they're not going to go out and buy a standalone carbon capture and storage policy because guess what? If you take a look at all of their standard insurance policies, it's not excluded because it's part of the operations. <laughs> yep, there you go. So it's not excluded yet. Anyone anyway, no actually knows they're covering this. This is one yep. of their assets that I'm sure they'll claim on it. And we can prove it's an asset. We know it's worth money because it's tradable. Correct. And in fact, unless the carbon capture and storage policy is broader than the traditional policies, it's very doubtful that an energy policy would go out and buy it separately. Why would they? Yep. Listen, I'm a huge advocate. You're a huge advocate of our industry. But again, when the press releases or declaratory statements are made, I do say, I applaud you. And the next thing I say, but now I need to delve deeper into this and really find out, has it moved the dial? Because if you're providing carbon capture and storage policies or a product for the voluntary carbon market, and you're putting up maybe lines of maybe 5 million pounds, and you'll sell X amount of those, what is that percentage of your overall portfolio, which has a huge carbon footprint on it? Because every business has a carbon footprint. So it's great that you're doing this, but that's not enough of an offset. So that's why I go back to it's not just about the negative screening. It is about the positive screening. And that requires very in-depth customer exchanging and really thinking beyond a policy, thinking about what services are, you know, what can you do? What can you provide to really support that transition? Yep. And in terms of the AI, how fast is this developing? And how key is that? You're going to get this data pond and it's going to become a lake and then hopefully it'll become an ocean. And you're going to be storing lots of stuff in there that you don't even know why you've got it yet because you're thinking, actually, at some point in the future, I'm going to have to ask loads of questions. I don't know I'm going to ask them in the future, but if I don't have this data, I'm never going to know the answer. And I don't know what I'm going to find inside this pond or ocean. The further we go down to the bottom of these oceans, we find the most fantastical creatures, you know, that are sort of uh, surviving at sort of how many hundreds of tons of pressure down at the bottom of uh, the deep Mariana Trench and whatever else. But is it really, we just can't do this without AI and machine learning, I presume. It's just an unfathomable, literally an unfathomable ocean of data. And you need something that's powerful enough to be able to see all the correlations. I would highly encourage it. I think if you don't, you're just fiddling around. You're just blind, I presume. Yeah, actually, that's a really good way of describing it. You're providing blind capacity. You're hoping that those that you're following are actually have the ability to give you an indication of what is good. Just sounds like you need to make sure your side A DNO is really watertight. Otherwise, you're going to be out of a job. Cynic <laughs> you. <laughs> so, what are you going to be doing next, David? What's most likely? I am working on a number of small projects. There's one particularly large project in that it's a government that's looking to overhaul their entire healthcare system and looking at where the areas of finance and insurance can be an enabler to transform and improve upon this. So I'm doing that as well as working on the AI predictive healthcare components of it. So as and when these projects come along, it's quite exciting. I have to admit, though, I miss a balance sheet. 
I really miss a balance sheet. I miss working with the C-suite that has a level of ambition, that has a technical drive, and that really is looking to really engage with the customers in a very different way. And frankly speaking, create better results. Because at the end of the day, everything that I've talked about, I'm not talking about creating charities here. I like for-profit businesses, and I like being market leader in profits. So everything that we've talked about today, I believe, are strong tools to create market-leading profits. So it sounds like you're open to all sorts of opportunities, David. So I expect we'll have you on the show at some point in the future, maybe in a different role, maybe with a balance sheet behind you. Anyway, until then, good luck and muito obrigado for coming on the show, as they probably say in Portugal. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks so much, David. I've really enjoyed our talk. It's probably been the most all-encompassing talk we've been able to have, particularly because you're not in a very fixed role at the moment. I think it probably gives you the freedom to talk more openly about this, and I really appreciate that. But given your experience, this is probably the most interesting podcast we've had for a very long time. I really, really enjoy it. So come on the show again soon, and thank you very much. Yeah, no, thank you, Mark. And again, I want to end it by saying my comments were not meant to be a criticism in any particular way to our industry. It's to encourage. Absolutely. I'm with you there. Absolutely. And, and good luck with that. It's a hard role, but someone's got to do it. Exactly. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate the time. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>